night. This is some ASMR for your St. Patrick's Day week because we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. Happy, happy, happy St. Patrick's Day to you, Ladia. Yeah. <laughs> happy St. Patrick's it's Day. It's the green light for St. Patrick's Day, so you oh, can't uh, you can't pinch us because our whole show nope, is green. Because we have based an identity around being green. That's right. Congrats to us. As a, a former Mass Singer contestant once said, it's not easy being green. It is not easy being green. And he's the only person who's ever said that, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Anyway. Enough, enough of us. Uh, Even though you're about to have us for another hour, roughly. So <laughs> buckle in if you yeah. didn't enjoy that. <laughs> so today we are reading Her Name is Harriet by John Michael Powell. Yes, uh, we are. We already had our interview and we actually just did our script recording. So we yes, have we a really great episode to bring to you this week. We do. We have a, we have a banger, as the kids say in the business <laughs> and now i will say i'll say this about our guest today probably the most high profile guest we have i and agree yeah not not to discredit any of our other guests we love you all equally you're all like our children except well not a lot of you are older than us <laughs> many of you are older than us so very much not like our children however you know uh i think uh one thing that we will get from this podcast that we haven't necessarily gotten to be able to get from our other guests is some sort of experience and talk about the industry itself yeah and specifically really in cool la insight. which is really fun yeah exactly so uh la to la connection here and it's going to be a lot of fun. So um, let's do a few housekeeping things before we dive into yeah. our detours. We do we not have any new before we dive into the interviews. Yes, we <laughs> do not have any new Apple Podcast reviews. So please get on out there, uh, give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you say like two words, that's fine. Tell us what you drank for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, true. Or if you are too young to drink, uh, tell us. I don't know what you, what you did to celebrate to St. Patrick's Day. I mean, yeah, that one. Uh, uh, you know, Lauren, sometimes I just feel like, uh, I understand how my mother felt when she, she asked me to like take out the trash or to like sweep the floors and I didn't do it. And she was like, why didn't you do this? And I'd be like, I don't know. That's me and all of you listening right now who hasn't given us a review. You're all the, I don't <laughs> just, know. Just disappointment. You're me. And younger me was fine. He was all right, I guess, but <laughs> he was very immature. So don't be young Jackson, be current Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it really helps <laughs> us as we always say, move up the charts. Yeah. Um, It'll, you know, put uh, sponsors' eyes on us. Yeah. Current um, Jackson. So it would help a lot. A little more baggage, a little more responsible. So just take that. It balances that, out, take I guess. That, take that how you may. Uh, follow us on social media, please, yeah. at TGL underscore pod. You can send uh, at us. At Pod on Facebook. Yes. I remember. Uh, you can also send us your scripts, or if you're an oh, actor, true. your voices. Uh, so you can send, like, a resume, voice sample, whatever, uh, to tglsubmit at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, if you want you to, you can join our Patreon club. Our, the, our exclusive Patreon club. Where yeah. We give you exclusive content. That's right. We're going to be recording our green lit for this month, The Wizard of Oz, chosen by our patrons, specifically Jackson's dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> specifically one man who means a lot to me. Yeah. So. But yeah, so we will be doing The Wizard of Oz this month. Uh, yeah. have not decided what our drink is going to be yet, but nope. we are going to be recording that this weekend, so that should be coming I, out shortly. I actually saw, so Ryan Reynolds today, weird fact, is re-watching his version of the Green Lantern movie, <laughs> and he is drinking a green drink in that. So we could potentially do something like that. Green witches. Okay, yeah. Just I'm to, down. Just throw it on there. Little Elphaba vibes. Exactly. I'll take it. We can do exactly. Elphaba's potion. Elphaba's potion. Sounds hey, good. look at that. Um, or, or no, like the green elixir. That was what turned her green. Oh, true. Even though I don't we think that's should. really in the Wizard of Oz, but. <sighs> Man, you know what? We should, we should have both cracked some drinks. True, because it's St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Well, we will be doing that immediately after we finish this. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was an awful that sound was terrible. effect. I'm bad. No. All right, let's move on. Let's from get all into that. it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you want to you want to talk about the detour segment this stuff. week, Laura? Yeah. Let's Normally let's do me. our detour segment. So this Come is the on. part where we talk about some content we've consumed in the past week, whether it be a movie, a TV show, a documentary or docu series, a book, an album, a ten year old video game, whatever stuff you're consuming this week. Uh, that's what we're talking about. You did that beautifully, my love. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. I, you know, I realized I haven't even said what we do here on the show, but we we already did say uh, that we were reading a play, um, really or not. well, a screenplay. Shoot. Well, I'll I'll take that this time. Okay. Uh, we read unpolluted. Un- <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> Great you, job. You handled your so flawlessly, and I just <laughs> ruined. I just ruined it. We read unproduced plays and screenplays and interview the writers who re- wrote them. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I wish I could tell you I've been drinking. I wish I could. I just simply can't. Okay. Wow. Uh, do you want to start off or do you want me to? Uh, I'll start off. Okay, Because cool. I, I think, you know, even though I didn't watch all of the thing that you watched, I did watch some of it. So we I can kind of both true. talk about it. That's true. So I just literally today, because I had to have something to talk about, finished reading <laughs> a book I've been working on called Circe by Madeline Miller. Circe. Yeah, Circe. So uh, not the character from Game of Thrones. That is spelled differently. But... Um, Circe is a figure in Greek mythology. Um, so you might recognize her from the Odyssey, um, which is the, the Homer epic, the Odyssey. Um, one of Odysseus's many stops along that route is he goes to Circe's island. I think it's pronounced Aia. There's a lot of vowels. Aia. <laughs> um, it's like all vowels. Aia. But Like Aida. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and she, different. you know, is basically a witch. Um, she turns his crew into pigs. Uh, they're, and I think when I read the Odyssey, it definitely reads more as like they're stuck there for a year. But looking back on it, it really is just like Odysseus kind of wanted to stay and hang out and, you know, chill and uh, have sex with Cersei. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's basically what happened. Um, what a time. But, you know, so this book is sort of a retelling from Cersei's perspective. She does, like, there is more lore about Cersei outside of just the Odyssey. Um, she is a daughter of Helios, who is the Titan sun, the, the Titan of the sun, basically. So mm-hmm. he's the one who drives his chariot across the sky every morning, and that is the sun, you know? Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so she is the daughter of the sun. Um, she Pretty is good technically a goddess. Members. She is immortal, but she doesn't necessarily have any godly powers. Instead, she is a witch. So um, after she accidentally transforms a nymph into Scylla, the six-headed monster that is also in the Odyssey, um, she is exiled to Aia for eternity. And there she has, you know, just a series of adventures, different people that she meets throughout um, mythological lore. You know, she meets Daedalus, she meets Medea and Jason, um, of course, uh, Odysseus. So um, yeah, it's a really great book. It's a really great retelling of it. Um, I really enjoyed it because I haven't read a first person novel in a long time. And I really, it is first person from Cersei's perspective. And I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I, I felt like it was a really cool, you know, because a lot of times when you look on stuff that is sort of set a long time ago, mythological times, you know, it's, it's usually not very feminist and this is definitely a feminist take on it. So I I really enjoyed it and it is written by a woman. It is a bestseller. I was going to ask that. So yeah, definitely check out Circe by Madeline Miller. It's Uh, awesome. Quick question for you, Lauren, about this. Yes. Do you think you need to have any mythological knowledge 
before going into this? Or so, do you think it explains it pretty one well? One nice thing, there's actually a glossary uh, at the end of it that has every, you know, person, mythological being mentioned in this. And oh, like cool. how they relate, what they did in mythology as a whole. So if you encounter, oh, yeah. it, it, I think it does a pretty good job of sort of explaining if you don't have that knowledge already. But if you get kind of hung up on someone, don't really know who they are, or what they did, then you can go back, to, flip to the back of the book and revisit that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I might I might have to check that out too eventually. How long is it? Uh, It's just under 400 pages, but I mean, the print's p- pretty big. It, okay. it reads pretty fast. That's not too shabby, I guess I will say. That's yeah. the first thing. Especially because, as you all know, I've shared a bit of my reading journey with you. I still feel new to... Even though I've been re- pleasure reading again for like the past eight, ten months, still still have to check that page limit because <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I don't want to get discouraged at this point. Sure. No, yeah. Uh, and I think this book is like, it's like I said, it's first person. I do think it's it's really accessible. Um, I, I got really into cool. it pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I am currently And, you know, I, I did not have as hard of a time as one might expect cramming the last 150 pages into less than 24 hours. So That's good. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's good That's good for my ears. Uh, I'm currently reading Frankenstein right now. Fun fact. Hey. Uh, so, uh, so working my way through a classic. But, uh, yeah. So is that all you have to say about Cersei? Yeah, that's all I have. Check cool. out Cersei. It's bomb. Check out Cersei. So my detour this week. Now, so, okay. Preface. I have a couple of... of I have one big series. Uh, Shit's Creek. I don't know why I have to be uh, secretive. I am. What, Jackson? We don't swear on this podcast. Stop it. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It's the name of the town if you haven't seen the show. Has a C in it and two T's. It does. Yes. So I am almost finished with that. I should have that done by next week. I'm thinking about doing a similar thing that I did with Community, where talking about it on the show, but then doing a longer discussion about it on the Ramble episode. Just because it's it's a really good series. It's a, you know, it's it's six seasons, so there's a lot to talk about. So I think I might be doing that, but just be wary of that. However, this is not Shit's Creek, nor is it X-Men the Animated Series, which I'm also working my way through. (laughs) (laughs) This is a Netflix documentary series, three episodes long, two hours and 40 minutes total, so it's essentially a long movie. Called Murder Among the Mormons. A documentary, like I said, detailing a high-stakes exploit turned deadly and shake a global church, the Mormon church, to its core in the extra- in this extraordinary true crime story. So essentially what this documentary dives into, I believe it is in the 80s. There is a uh there is a a rare document finder and salesman essentially who starts to discover these really explosive texts that were apparently written by um like early mormons or what, what's the the guys uh, joseph smith yes him okay supposedly written by him about his you know discovery the mormon of prophet joseph smith that's right that young man spoke to god there you go. this is based off the musical book of mormon no, no. Kidding, it's not. <laughs> what but i yeah. said is from book of mormon yeah. these documents written by joseph smith that were very explosive at the time that they were discovered by this man named Mark Hoffman, who is this, who's this really, at the time, prominent, specifically Mormon document finder. Uh, they detail Joseph Smith's, uh, how he was led to something by a white salamander, and called the White Salamander Letter. Now, this and other documents that were found by uh, Mark Hoffman were so explosive and inflammatory at the time because the Mormon church, it, it sort of painted the Mormon church in a more mythical slash magical light as opposed to you know strict spiritual etc yeah as opposed to something that is you know as 
believable for like a modern audience. Yeah. Like I think that was their concern is that they would lose followers. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it was a big deal. And so at the end of this first episode, you find out about that around this time that these documents were discovered, there were these bombings that happened, killing multiple people, all who were involved in this sort of rare document dealing. The, these ones specifically, ones that had to deal with documents from the Mormon church. So this documentary talks all about that. Uh, it's it's a, it's a bit of a talking head documentary, like there are a, a lot of interviews, but there's also some footage from the 80s and footage from that time, which is uh, sort of cool to see. It is, <laughs> one thing is interesting to see how these people age, because this wasn't, the, this wasn't like the 80s, and now this is the 2020s. So some people age gracefully, others do not, which yeah. doesn't really have a bearing on the documentary as a whole, but it's just, just a fun little thing there. Um... So I had watched the first two episodes like a couple of days ago, and I watched the third episode last night. I will say there is a pretty big twist in is sort of in the middle second and leading into the third episode that's really that really they dive into in the third episode that is interesting. So I'm not going to spoil any of that. I'm not going to spoil, you know, sort of what the twist is, but it, I think it was effective at keeping me engaged, especially for that last episode. You know, like, I feel like especially sometimes, especially if it's a documentary series and it's like nearing three hours, it's like, okay, does this need to be three hours? Or right. could it have just been a documentary? Do we need to watch people flipping through Facebook posts for yes. three hours? <laughs> exactly. Don't F with cats at you. But for this one, I, th I think they did a good job of keeping the, they, they sort of a bit of a bait and switch. A bit of a bait and switch with what they did. Uh, but once again, I, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think it's this this documentary will be experienced best if you don't know much about this situation. Now, if you lived through the 80s, maybe you remember this because I imagine this was kind of a pretty big deal. Yeah, or if you're in the Mormon church, you might already know about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, the third episode, I think, is the strongest that stands out the most. Um, the second episode, I feel like, drags a little bit. Uh, and, and it does take a pretty big departure. Y you can also say that because of the way the story is told and the storytelling itself, it, it, <laughs> it doesn't exactly paint the Mormon church positively, sure. I would say. And so you, you can sort of kind of tell the, the documentarian's perspectives on that, I would say a little bit, but you know, it's, it's a compelling story. It's interesting. Uh, they have some good interviews, some especially powerful interviews in that third episode, I would say. Some some very emotional ones. And I think it's worth a watch. If you like true crime stuff, you'll probably enjoy this. Uh, Murder Among the Mormons, Netflix. Watch it. Check it out. Check it out. So when we come back, we will be reading Her Name is Harriet by John Michael Powell. Yes, we did. We, that, that was a tight 15, Lauren. Wow, look at us. That was a tight 15. Well, we are ready to go drink some Guinness and enjoy our St. Patrick's Day. So we hope you had a great St. Patrick's Day yes, and are having did. a great uh, March 19th. Yes. <laughs> True. Two days after. Maybe you're still hungover. And we'll be right back. Bye. everybody welcome back to the green light podcast green light and if you heard a snicker over there that was from william thank you for the green light don't know if i thank you for the snicker what was that a drug? <laughs> 
So we have Will here with us. We also have another very special guest. Howdy, howdy. Blake Benson. You know him. You've heard his voice. They're, okay. they're, they're green light veterans. <laughs> a special, more quiet guest. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, green light veterans. Uh, fellas, thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah. Of course. Also, to everyone listening, happy St. Patrick's Day, even though when you're listening to this, it, it will, will not, not be St. Patrick's, Saint Patrick's Day. Day. Happy belated, I guess we'll say. Hope you had a good one. Yeah. Hope you stayed safe and didn't go to any bars. Yeah, true. And if you did, shame on you. Yep. Uh, you're, you have to listen to every episode over again. And you should say That's it. your punishment. I don't make the rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Alrighty. I think we could just dive in. Let's do it. Yeah, so I am Lauren. As you know, I will be playing Harriet. My name is Jackson, and I will be playing Rudy. My name is Blake, and I'll be playing Clayton. My name is Will, and I will be playing Action Line Reader. Thank you, Will. Doing a great job already. <laughs> <laughs> he's really in character. You know he's, he's dedicated to this role. Alrighty then, Will. Take us away. Her name is Harriet, written by John Michael Powell. Interior, apartment. Moments later. Clayton, 30s, stands in an East Angelino apartment, looking out of place. Exposed brick walls are covered with bright, colorful art with a Mexican, Caribbean, Bohemian vibe. There's mid-century furniture and a bed on the floor in the back of the room. In a word, the place is... cool. Clayton, on the other hand, doesn't exactly exude cool in his Ghostbusters t-shirt, ball cap, and nerdy chic glasses. To say the least, he feels out of place. The sound of someone bumping around in the next room plays off screen. Clayton notices a few packed up boxes. One says kitchen on the side. You moving out? No. Clayton shrugs it off. Rudy, 30s, appears from the back of the apartment with an old acoustic guitar, the type that's seen a lot of action. Rudy is shirtless, but it somehow feels natural. He has the opposite demeanor of Clayton, the type of guy who's naturally cool. Rudy hands the guitar to Clayton pensively. Wow. Nice. Clayton holds it, plucks a few strings. Rudy watches him with concern. Man, you have no idea how long I've been wanting this guitar. Rudy nods numbly. Clayton beams. There's just something about these J49s, right? All that history in every single fret? Rudy nods. Starts to tear up. Tries to hold it back, but can't. Like letting go of the guitar is breaking his heart. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you okay? Sorry, sorry, I'm good. Uh, <clears throat> you want to try it out? Clayton starts to pluck the guitar meekly. Rudy watches a moment before he interjects. Her name is Harriet. I'm sorry? That's her name. The guitar's named Harriet. Yeah. Awkward beat. Wow. Okay, that's a very specific name. What, you don't like that name? Oh, no, I just, I know a Harriet, so it's a bit weird. Clayton looks down the neck to see if there's any bow. Rudy watches him. She doesn't always stay in tune, and sometimes she treats you like shit. Like, you get this feeling deep in your gut that she might even hate you, but then you remind yourself, there's only one Harriet in the whole entire world. Harriet. (laughs) Rudy's eyes are red. Clayton's starting to feel like there's something about this guy and this guitar. I'm sorry. Are you sure you want to sell this guitar? Can I just... Rudy grabs the neck. Clayton backs off. Okay. Rudy starts plucking on the strings. He's really good. But then he starts belting into a full-on tune. Oh, wow. Okay. Rudy continues to sing a heartbreaking tune about a mysterious woman. Clayton has to wait, awkwardly. Tears start streaming down Rudy's face. It's super awkward. Sorry. Does this mean the guitar's not for sale? Keys start to jingle at the door. The door opens. A girl pushes into the room with purpose, but then freezes in confusion at the sight of Clayton. At Rudy. 
Clayton's jaw drops. Harriet? Clay? That's right. Her name is Harriet, and Harriet's way cool. Leather jacket, defiant vibe, strongest shit artist type. You know him? Oh my god, oh my god. Clayton starts pacing nervously. What are you doing here? He's buying my guitar. What are you doing here? I came to get my stuff. Wait, I bought you that guitar. I knew something was weird. Who names a guitar Harriet? You named the guitar Harriet? Well, See, I yeah. thought this was weird like, from the very beginning, and I'm so sorry, like, babe. I really didn't think I was supposed I to be here. Everyone shut up! Just shut up! How do you know him? Clayton looks at Harriet for some help here. Rudy looks confused. Harriet blushes. Rudy... Clay's... He's the guy. Rudy turns red with embarrassment and anger. This is the guy? Whoa, whoa, whoa! You fucked my girlfriend? Rudy starts to charge at Clayton, but Harriet pushes herself in between them. Clayton kind of bunny hops out of the harm's way. Stop it! Stop! What am I, some piece of meat you own? Don't do that shit, Harriet. Yeah, Rudy. She's not some piece of meat. Stop it. He didn't fuck me, okay? We fucked. Together. That's what healthy partners do. Your shit is still all over my apartment. What's healthy about that? Wait, why is your stuff still here? Harriet sighs. Feels bad. I was in the process of getting everything. I mean, I am. Obviously. I'm getting my things now. What does it matter? You don't think you should have told me? What, that I still needed to pick up a box of tampons? Clay, I'm with you. But look at him! It's not even fair! What? He's like, the cool guy. He sings unironically sad songs. He manages to make not wearing a shirt normal. So? Do you realize what kind of lingering weight an ex like this can have on a new relationship? He's not lingering. But he is! You're here! No, we... I'm not doing this right now. Clayton respects me, okay? He doesn't treat me like a child. I never treated you like a child. You never took care of me. He takes care of me. How exactly did I not take care of you? Tell me. Really? You want to do this right now? Tell me how I didn't take care of you. Okay. How about the time you left me waiting at the airport? Oh, come on. That's not fair. It was midnight and my phone was dead. I could have been raped. I told you my car broke down. You were drunk and fell asleep at the tiki room. Oh, yeah. Should we talk about your terrible fucking drinking problem? You're an alcoholic, Rudy. You need help. The room falls to silence. Rudy shakes his head embarrassed. Clayton squirms uncomfortably. Be honest with me. Is this about my dick? Whoa. Jesus, Rudy, what the fuck? What? I know you thought about it. Of course you think it's your dick. What is the deal with men and their dicks? Just tell me. Is his dick bigger than mine? Please don't answer that. Okay. I'm getting my things, and we're leaving. Harriet heads to the back room. The two men stand there awkwardly in silence, not making eye contact. Clayton scans over to the guitar. So, did you still want to sell the guitar, or...? Rudy looks at him incredulously. A thousand. A thousand dollars? Are you kidding? I think it's fair, considering you fucked my girlfriend. She's not your girlfriend anymore. Fifteen hundred. What? Two thousand. Final offer. Oh, fuck off. What? You've been looking for this guitar forever. You said that, didn't you? Clayton looks at the guitar, his materialism gnawing at him. Didn't you say that? Rudy holds Harriet up like something to be worshipped. Clayton is transfixed. Yeah. So you're telling me that Harriet's not worth it? Two thousand's a lot. What? You some kind of pussy? What? Pussy. 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 
pussy. Shut up. You shut up, pussy. Stop calling me that. I'll stop calling you a pussy when you man up and show me you're good enough for this guitar. What? The second you show weakness, this guitar is going to trample all over you. Rudy shoves the guitar, maybe a little hard, into Clayton's arms. Play it. I'm not playing the guitar. Clayton pushes the guitar back. Because you're a pussy. Rudy shoves the guitar back. Clayton scowls. Harriet returns, confused, her arms full of clothes. What's going on? Clayton changed his mind. He doesn't think your guitar's worth the price. Harriet looks unimpressed by this conversation. Clayton becomes suddenly insecure. I didn't say that. Babe, I didn't say that. Ooh, you let him call you babe? I'm not paying $2,000 for Harriet. Harriet's eyebrow raises. The guitar, obviously. Let me get this straight. The price of Harriet is $2,000. Harriet looks angry, but it's really hard to tell what part of this whole deal she's truly angry about. Sorry, is that... Are we saying that's high or low? Harriet seethes silently. Rudy makes a face at Clayton like he just sentenced himself to his own death. Okay, I'm confused. Are we talking about the guitar or Harriet? Harriet is the guitar, idiot. What are we talking about? Clayton looks confused, scans to Rudy, to Harriet, feeling the heat in the room. All right, 2,000. Clayton grabs the guitar. Rudy grabs it back. I changed my mind. It's not for sale. Rudy tries to grab it back. Clayton won't let go. No, you can't take it back. We had a deal. I had it first. You She's posted mine. online. Let, let it go. go. Let go. She's, She's mine. mine now. Harriet watches the two fools playing tug-of-war over the guitar for a disgusted beat before she grabs the guitar away from both of them and lifts it over her head. No, 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 no. She smashes it down on the ground, over and over and over. Rudy and Clayton watch in silent horror, unable to do anything. When Harriet is done, she tosses the remnants of the guitar on the ground, glares at the two men. Harriet turns, grabs two cardboard boxes, and heads for the door. Oh. And you both have tiny dicks. She turns and leaves the boys to their smashed guitar in an awkward silence. Clayton and Rudy look down at the murdered instrument, the wreckage, their mutual relationships destroyed. Cut to black. The end. everybody welcome back to the green light podcast my name is jackson and i'm lauren and who are we here with today lauren we are with our writer of the week would you like to introduce yourself sure Uh, my name's john michael powell writer of the week (laughs) writer of the week official title now you have to use that wherever you go first thing on your resume uh so first uh, so yeah so we've talked about uh obviously before the call where you're calling from but could you tell everybody where you're calling from today yeah, sure. I'm in uh, right now, kind of overcast, which is odd for Los Angeles, California. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's been, you know, I uh, met somebody while I was at work who, you know, was traveling and was trying to camp this past week, mm. which is like the worst week ever to camp when it's actually kind of cold and rainy. Yeah, for I once, know. You know, the, the one yeah. time in LA it does that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I I live in Woodland Hills, which is just about a little bit outside of the city center, but. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, we kind of get the extremes out here. So it's hotter than it is normally in the middle of the city and it's colder. I think the other night I went out to go lock my car and it was like 36 degrees. Yeah. Which is just like unheard of in LA. I, I actually shivered. I was like, what is going on here? I, I'm not <laughs> yeah. used to <laughs> This isn't normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not why I moved here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, John. So now give us your writer origin story. 
How did you get started writing? Ooh, writer origin. So probably not your typical writer origin story. Uh, I love it. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I went to film school in Texas and then I came out to LA when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. And I went straight into film editing. So I was a film editor, um, still film editing to, to this day, but spent a long time as a, I came up as an assistant editor and then worked my way up to, uh, you know, indie features was what I kind of wanted to get into. And uh, I actually started out in horrible reality television doing like, <laughs> I th- the first show I ever did was called Bad Girls Club. I don't even know if that show is still around. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Is That's it? the, well, no, I, I don't think it is. But isn't that <laughs> the one that that meme came from that was like, I don't That's right. get no sleep because of y'all. Yeah, that That's one. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I was... My first job in LA was, uh, I was a night logger, what they call a night logger. I went in at six in the evening. I would pop in, you know, the tapes from set and I would record every bit. I would write down, transcribe every bit of dialogue from every tape on set. And I would do that till six in the morning. Wow. Uh, So six to six every night. That's what I was doing. I was sitting in a building over in Burbank transcribing drunk girls trying to get in fights um <laughs> wow. which was what the show marketed it, it it was unabashedly trashy yeah um and i really had no desire <laughs> that was not why i came out to la was <laughs> sure. to, to do that so, and no hate on any of that stuff I, it i have friends who still work in reality and it, it's a good it's a good living and you know you can you can do really well for yourself but i wanted to do you know, I went to you know snobby film school, and I wanted to do you know like I wanted to be Kubrick and and do stuff like that. So uh, I, when I was working over at the company, was called Buna Murray. I ended up on Real World and some of the other bigger reality shows. But at that time, I was like, I want to get into editing, and I ended up taking a job and working for Jerry Zucker, who um, uh, directed Airplane. Um, oh yeah, the, mm-hmm. yeah, the seminal kind of. Yeah. Uh, surely you can't be serious is a very common, uh, catchphrase from that movie that everybody says to this day, but it was just kind of a seminal comedy movie. And I worked for Jerry for three years and that was like my foray into narrative. And I kind of got into comedy and, and, and narrative editing. And we were doing at the time, it was like web comedy. We were like trying to compete with college humor Yeah, was the yeah, only yeah. other game in town at the time. And Jerry was trying to do web comedy. And then, um, What's the Will Ferrell one? Uh, the Will Ferrell Adam McKay company. Um, Funny or Die. Oh, oh right, yeah, right, right, Funny, right. Or, yeah. Funny or Die came out. This is dating me, so I'm a little bit older. But <laughs> um, Funny or Die came out, and it just killed every. I mean, it just took over the web comedy. Every the paradigm completely shifted to that, and our company kind of at the time we kind of folded and I was at that. Now I was at that point ready to get into narrative like full time, like features is what I really wanted to get into. So honestly, uh, this is the weirdest story, not the weirdest, but it's kind of a crazy story. But I, I went on Craigslist, which I don't know if people still even go on Craigslist looking for media jobs in LA, but back then that's what you did. (laughs) And I went on Craigslist and I started responding to every editing narrative like shorts features anything i could find and i saw a post that was looking for a line producer for a feature film and i thought well if they they are trying to find a line producer then they don't they probably don't have an editor yet so i just wrote (laughs) i wrote and said look i'm not a line producer but i'm an editor if you ever get to the point where you need an editor drop me a line and heard nothing six months later i got an email 
uh, from the director who said, hey, you emailed me about this a while back. Would you like to meet up? We ended up getting financing for the movie and we're, we're ready to go. So I went, had coffee with the director and just hit it off immediately. She also, she was Scottish and she was also, you know, the Stanley Kubrick snobby filmmaker like me. And we just sure. hit it off immediately <laughs> and ended up doing that movie. That was the first feature I ever cut. It was called Obsolidia. And uh, that went to Sundance and it won the Alfred P. Sloan Prize and it wow. won Best Cinematography at Sundance. And we were nominated for two Spirit Awards. So then. Wow, congratulations. Af- yeah, thank you. Uh, so randomly, because of a Craigslist post, uh, I ended up editing an award-winning film. And then after that, everything kind of changed for me. Like, you know, the narrative editorial work just kind of came to me. And, so, mm-hmm. you know, I started meeting other filmmakers who were who were at Sundance or who, who had friends who were making films. And so for a long time, I just started doing indie dramas, like the, the, the typical movies you would see coming out of Sundance every year. And kind of made a career at that. I don't, I don't, at this point I've done, I don't know, probably 20 or so features. And, you know, I've had multiple at Sundance, South by Southwest, Toronto, all the biggie festivals. I've had editorial works there. And, um, the, the, probably the most notable credit that I've done, I cut, if you know, the Netflix show, Dear White People. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I cut, uh, I cut season three of Dear White People, um, and yeah, so while I was editing, um, <laughs> I I was always in my mind. I knew I wanted to write and direct. Yeah. Um, I actually got into editing first because I thought, well, first of all, I was I was really good with software. Like when I was in college, sure. I mean, I was the guy who you could hand a piece of software to, and I could figure it out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So that just lent itself to like Avid editing and, and, and what you do for those who don't know, it's like Avid is the software that you cut movies with. And I, it just made sense to me right from the get go. And everybody in my film school didn't even want to deal with it. So I was like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll be I, the Avid guy. Fine. <laughs> I, I'll be the Avid guy. And I became the default editor. And I figured I knew I always wanted to write and direct, but I figured if you knew how to cut together a movie, then you kind of knew how the sausage was made and you could kind of mm-hmm. do anything. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get into directing and writing through editing and learn the craft of storytelling through putting together movies on the backside and then reverse engineer kind of my career. So while I was editing all these kind of indie movies, I was kind of taking little bits of, you know, my own film knowledge from each one of them, learning from really good filmmakers, learning from really bad filmmakers, because you, <laughs> you learn from both. And on the side, I was just writing writing my own stuff. This was probably, I was probably six or so movies into when I got, I started just like really honing my writing skills. Um, I mean, I'd always been a writer. I was like that kid when I was like six years old who was writing hmm. like little stories and drawing comic books and stuff like that. So <laughs> I was always, uh, uh, you know, a writer. But screenwriting uh, kind of started probably about five, six years into my my professional career. And... I wrote my first script, which was terrible, like all first scripts. It was meandering and just kind of all over the place and had every idea that like my brain had ever conceived that should be in a movie. <laughs> sure. Because they all need to be in there. They I all mean, have to that's, be in there. That's what your brain does, right? <laughs> yeah. you, you just throw the kitchen sink. Yeah, it's just, it was bad. Anyway, so I should have paced myself and spread that movie out over like five scripts. But, um, but I learned a lot from it. And I honestly didn't even share any of my early stuff because I knew like, I was just learning what what the heck I was doing, mm. but well, I don't know. I, it must have been 
uh, second or third script I had written, uh, I wrote a script called The Killing Kind, which was a um, kind of backwoods thriller that takes place in Arkansas um, because that's where I grew up. I knew that mm. world really well. Um, you can't tell from my accent, but my mother sounds like a Southern belle. So I, <laughs> I can channel that that dialogue really easily. It's it's in my ear. I can just totally. hear it. I mean, you guys yeah. are from North Carolina, so like, For sure, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. even your accents are very uh, mellow compared to, like like I said, my ex-girlfriend who, whose parents were from Asheville. Yeah. That's yeah. super. But, um, but anyway, I, I thought, you know, you always hear the this this cliche, you know, advice, write what you know. So I was like, I'm going to write a script that is a world I know. And I wrote a, a thriller that takes place in Arkansas. It's kind of like a blood feud between two, right? It's Hatfields and McCoys. Sure. Repurposed yeah. for modern kind of times. And I wrote that script and it then suddenly got a lot of like, this is, uh, what is the word? Heat? <laughs> it's such a stupid word. But um, We'll use heat for this podcast. We'll use, we'll use heat. It. <laughs> it was getting heat uh, on the very, on a very minor scale, but it was getting passed around by friends who were producers. And, and um, through that, I ended up getting manager, a lit manager. Um, and I ended up getting repped at one of the big agencies, which is a whole nother story, which I can tell you about um, and give you, give you some <laughs> insights on. But, uh, and then through that, process i got a producer involved and and i was gonna write i was gonna direct it as well and i put that movie together over the course of a year it was gonna be aaron paul was gonna be in the lead and jane lynch were attached to do that and some other great actors david dasmalkian who you might not know the name but he pops up a lot he's a great character actor um david's in uh ant-man the ant-man series he plays the russian guy um, yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah with sure. the quaff he's david's great and then uh, Ido Goldberg, who has since become one of my best friends, but he's an amazing, he's from Peaky Blinders, really talented actor uh, himself. Um, in fact, I should just shout out to Ido. Ido's wife, Ashley Medekwi, just got nominated for a BAFTA. So I'm really proud oh, wow. of her. Yeah, yeah. best wow. supporting Congrats actress. Yeah. yeah, go Ashley. Hope she wins. But um, anyway, so I put, the, I put this whole cast together. And then uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that another cliche Hollywood story, but we were two weeks away from shooting and the whole movie fell apart and we lost all of our financing. Wow. So yeah. So I I was like two weeks away from like making my directorial debut that I wrote on a script that was like doing really well and, and it all fell apart. And so then I just started over from square one. And I, at that point I'd spent so emotional, so much emotional time invested in that script that I needed to go somewhere else and do something different and write something new. So just started writing more stuff and um man i can tell you all the stories of like the painful development hell that like writers go through because i've been through them you know i wrote another script that was greenlit over at sony worldwide and we had financing and then the pandemic hit and you know Mm um yeah but anyway the, the killing kind was kind of the the open door for me that transitioned me from being an editor to being kind of a writer that people took seriously that I could at least, you know, get my work around. And I had these actors who were respected actors who kind of vetted the the script. So suddenly that opened up a whole new kind of professional world for me. 
For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I feel like when you have people like Aaron Paul and Jane Lynch <laughs> who are like willing to work with your script, that means something for uh, sure. For sure. You know? Yeah. So that's that's really awesome, man. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, All right. You could. I would take your congratulations a lot better if we had actually made the movie. <laughs> sure, but, sure. I'm sure. I mean, sure it, it's a bitter, it's a bittersweet pill to swallow but yeah sure, i'm sure that yeah. hits a little differently in that no case. it's i am <laughs> yeah. definitely proud and 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 you know and thankful that those people were were very kind to my work but yeah 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 for sure so let's move into this script um so obviously the script revolves around harriet um both the guitar and as we later find out the woman so <laughs> why did you choose a guitar to be the item that represented the real life harriet yeah well i'm i'm a musician uh i grew up in bands and I play guitar. So I think, I don't think I thought about it at the time. I mean, I knew I wanted to write a script that, I mean, on some level was about toxic masculinity. I mean, the toxic masculinity in this script is very absurd. Yeah. I mean, the two guys are kind of buffoons. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when I look back on it and I think about, and I do this a lot with my writing, I don't think about it at the time, but probably both characters are, are versions of myself. You know, there's two <laughs> main characters in this, Rudy and Clayton. Yeah. And I, I'm a musician and a guitar player. And I think, you know, on a certain level, we mythologize our, our instruments, you know, sure. you yeah. know in a way. Yeah. And we, we give them a life. I mean, every, there's classic examples of you know, musicians who have named their guitars, like Willie Nelson and, all. you know. And I, I've, I, I don't know, you know, B.B. King or like these guitars that... Is it weird that we name them women? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, and that's I mean, kind of as a, a as a woman, yeah. How do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and that's loosely what the script was. I, it was just kind of the weird concept that we name guitars women and like we we bang on them and play music. It's just like a very strange kind of thing. And that the script is of of course a comedy at its yeah. heart. Yeah. I mean, it, it's absurdist, but. It was definitely me trying to tackle some form of toxic masculinity in the in the way that men try to control women. Totally, yeah. So y you mentioned that um, that obviously our two male characters are kind of to an extent versions of yourself, um, and we get three very vivid descriptions of all these characters. So, like, talk about developing these characters and your thought process behind each of like their personalities. Yeah, I mean. It, it's 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 clearly yin and yang. I mean, Clayton and yeah. Rudy are right from the get go described as very different. I mean, you've got the typical rocker. You know, Rudy is is like he's shirtless. He's he's like cool. He's like living in kind of a bohemian L.A. loft kind of thing. Um, and Clayton is the antithesis of that. He is yeah. nerd. He's wearing a Ghostbusters T-shirt. He's nerdy. Um, again, I think this is both versions of myself is like, I find myself to be, I I've always <laughs> in my, um, life I've, I've kind of like, even in high school, I got along with everybody. I was like the nerdy kid. I was like the cool kid. I was like the jock. I was like, I was everybody. So I, that's just my personality. I get along with everybody. And so yeah. like, I think Clayton and Rudy are two versions. I'm like somewhere in the middle of both of them. Sure. Um, sure. I, I'd like to think, I mean, geez, <laughs> um, I think they're extreme versions of my personality or, I mean, they're definitely their own people. I don't want to be anything like Rudy. I, I'm more right. like Clayton. I'm sure. <laughs> I don't want to be anything like a Rudy. I mean, Rudy has his own issues, but, um, but it definitely channeling, you know, 
yeah per aspects of myself like the nerdiness and the and, and the cool guy and yeah. i always just thought it would you know when you're writing it's all about conflict obviously conflict makes for good drama even mm-hmm. in a comedy and you know if you're starting off with two characters who are at odds to begin with just stylistically and you know um just philosophically then you're gonna have conflict baked in and when you're writing you don't really have to th- it just comes, you know what I mean? You don't really have to yeah. manufacture conflict. It's already there. Mm-hmm. For sure. So speaking of these two characters who are on, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum, um, we sort of get to see how Harriet and Broody's relationship fell apart. But how did Harriet end up with Clayton, someone who's completely different? Yeah, I mean, Harriet, I think, is, funnily enough, since you guys read this short film, I actually turned this short into an entire feature. Um, oh, did you really? Wow. I did, which I've never done before. I've never turned a short into a feature film. Um, and uh, I wrote a whole feature. It, it, funnily enough, Clayton and Rudy and Harriet are more side characters. They're not even the main character. But oh, the, the, in the feature, it's kind of a dazed and confused. It all takes place over the course of one night, and it's an ensemble with a bunch of different characters who are intersecting. Oh, cool. um, and Clayton and Rudy and Harriet are, yeah, they have a little 10 minute sequence in the movie, which you read here. Right. But when I did the feature film, then I really started thinking about the characters deeper and fleshing them out more. Um, and I, Harriet, I, I kind of, ima- <laughs> in the feature, Harriet is a jingle writer. She writes the jingles oh. <laughs> that you, yeah, that you hear on like t- television shows and commercials. In fact, in my script, she... I don't know if you guys are, maybe I'm, again, dating myself, but there used to be this radio um, commercial that played on the radio all the time. It was like 1877 Cars for Kids. It's this just yes. it plays not, maybe it still (laughs) plays, and it's this jingle that is the most obnoxiously addictive jingle. It's like 1877 Cars for Kids. Anyway, in my script, Harriet is the writer of that jingle, and that's (laughs) that's her career, and the irony of Harriet is she takes herself really... She, like, wears leather jackets and thinks she's a rock star. Yeah. But she writes jingles. So yeah. in the script, she's a little bit more human. Here, she's a little bit... You know, she. you're only getting a few minutes of Harriet, so you're seeing of course. her whisk in, defend her integrity, and then leave yeah. in, a, in kind of a funny way. But um, in the feature, she has met Clayton because she's kind of the independent, like, strong-willed woman who kind of... To Harriet's, I don't want where she needs to grow. Is she she goes and she uses men for her own kind of uh, ego, and so she's going yeah. in it. She's in a phase in her life where she is, you know, going tasting every little bit of of types of relationship she can. So the idea being that Clayton is the opposite of Rudy. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it gives gives Harriet, you know, something to play with. Uh, if you if you will in her relationship kind of like growth and and Rudy would be like the typical what you would expect Harriet to go for and now she's kind of branching out and trying to trying to try something a little different even though Harriet's yeah. not really serious about Clayton in any way. Sure, um, right. <laughs> I mean, you can tell from 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 the short and in the feature you get more insight into that. I mean, there's after this short ends, there's some moments afterwards, but um. But yeah, I mean, Harriet is her own strong-willed, 
you know, independent woman who uh, is figuring herself out. And Clayton and Rudy just happen to be the collateral damage. Uh, <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah, I think it is interesting how you set up, like, the order of these relationships for her. Because I mm. feel like kind of the trope is, oh, there's, like, you know, the nerdy guy gets left for the cool guitar yeah. shirtless man. So yeah, it, it's kind of cool that. that it's the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> that it's, like, <laughs> Clayton sitting over here like, uh, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm with her, doesn't, you know? <laughs> doesn't that objectify, I mean, doesn't that, like, kind of, I don't know, it's just so silly, it belittles Harriet, doesn't it? It's yeah. Like, it's, like, of course, you know, women just as much as men are, are you know, they're not, I don't know, the idea, it's everything, did you guys find everything in high school comes back to high, or everything in life comes back to high school? I feel like <laughs> even working in LA, it feels like when you work in Hollywood, it's just a different form of high school in a different little bubble, but like yeah. that trope of of the girl leaving the nerdy guy for the for the quote unquote hot dude who's like the rock star guy, it's just so silly. And I, yeah. I don't know that I was conscious of that when I was writing it. I think... I don't. I think when you write so much and you just build a muscle memory, because um, you know I try to write every day. Um, sure. It's kind of like working out. You know, you get up in the morning and you put words on the page. It's like lifting weights and doing a, a, a you know a workout routine. Mm-hmm. Once you get to a point where you're doing it so much, the muscle memory kicks in, and I don't know that my 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 writer brain would let me do the opposite, where Harriet <laughs> would leave would leave the nerdy guy. It's just not in my um. My writer DNA. Yeah. Sure. Stuff like that sure. bugs me. But I, yeah. it's cool that you noticed that and called that out. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, you kind of, I, I feel like I know the answer to this question because you, you sort of talked just about Harriet, but I'll ask it anyways. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, Clayton says that Harriet's, uh, Harriet showing up at Rudy's apartment is a sign she still has some sort of feelings for him. Obviously, Clayton's a little jealous, but is there any <laughs> truth little. to that, you know, or is she actually just get there to get some leftover things? I See, I would side <laughs> In this short, uh, I would, I would side with Harriet. I, I, I yeah. to me, Harriet is, is doing the noble thing. She's, she's in the. I mean, the noble thing. Look, here's the thing about it: all relationships, and especially breakups, there it's gray. It's not black and white. Of course. Um, and and you know, technically, Harriet was still, kind of had one foot in the door with with Rudy while she met Clayton. But emotionally, she had moved on, and they were, you know, imagine it like a breakup, like a divorce, where you're still finalizing the paperwork, right? Yeah. But emotionally, every all all relationships kind of had ceased to exist, and she's just coming to pick up her things. In my mind, because I, you know, in a way, I see Harriet as not the protagonist, but she's definitely. She's the only sane person in, the, in this yeah. version. I think that's a good uh, way to describe Harriet. <laughs> She's definitely much more emotionally um, <laughs> matured than these yeah. two guys. I mean, uh, that I, I do honestly think she was trying to do the right thing, and she was in the process of moving on to be in a relationship with Clayton. Obviously, Clayton's jealousy just got the better of him, and, yeah. and you know, yeah. in this moment, he turned into a pitiful kind of. Yeah. <laughs> whining. <laughs> yeah. It's so fun. It's in the feature, the, the Clayton is such a, a much more prominent character, actually. In oh, the feature, he's not the lead, but he's kind of the third um, top build, at least. And his character is such, so much more human in the, um, in the feature. So I made the nerdy guy who I, like I said, I tend to find myself to be a little bit more closer to Clayton than Rudy. Rudy in the script, <laughs> actually in the, in the feature, Rudy is much, 
less human <laughs> and Clayton oh. is much more human. So Rudy's sure. even more on the, on the other side of yeah. the, the spectrum. So, but yeah. yeah, but right here, Clayton is definitely, he's jealous and he's being an idiot. For sure. For sure. Yeah. For sure, yeah. But so, I think a relatable idiot, by the way, I think like we can all relate to being jealous and overthinking stupid. Sure. Rela- I mean, it, he kind Absolutely. of turns into Seinfeldy there for a little bit and he's just overthinking it. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of talked a little bit earlier about how the the fact that these two characters are polar opposites really facilitates that tension and that conflict. Um, so I just want to talk about that a little more. Um, so this script goes from a slightly maybe uncomfortable transaction to <laughs> a heated argument between two enemies. So talk about how you built that tension and the different devices you use to achieve that. Yeah, I mean... The guitar, obviously, is the big one. I mean, mm-hmm. at the center of this story... So the setup of the story is, you know, obviously this Clayton comes to this house, to Rudy's apartment, uh, on a Craigslist buy, or, you know, something like it, yeah. to buy this guitar that he's really wanted, that he's always, uh, you know, kind of had an eye for. It's a rare guitar. And Rudy immediately, you know, you can feel some, some hesitance in Rudy giving it over. And, I mean, probably in the first couple beats of the story you see rudy get pretty emotional about the guitar yeah so the (laughs) moment the i think what makes it work is the moment you see the rudy get emotional about the guitar i think that's where you're talking about where it gets a little weird yeah like a little strange (laughs) and awkward exchange you're like at that point it's like you know something's a little off but you don't know what (laughs) and and clayton does too and and that's why i think clayton's a little bit more human than rudy in this because because you're watching rudy get really emotional about an inanimate object, like we said, yeah. this guitar. I think that's what works about the script. The minute Rudy gets emotional, I mean, he almost comes to tears. It's kind of pathetic. Um, yeah. and, and funny, but pathetic. But m- the moment that happens, you feel the reticence in Rudy to give away this thing. Um, and then that's when the possession uh, element of the story starts working. So you see these two yeah. guys at odds because they both want to possess this thing. And then obviously the big change in the script is when Harriet comes into the apartment, the possession element pits Harriet in the middle. So then, yeah. right. so then you've got this nice tug and, and pull this push and pull between the characters uh, wanting this inanimate object with Harriet in the middle as representative of a relationship of love, affection and music. <laughs> um, there's some, but from there on out, I think the, the, the conflict kind of screams and it, it, it's a, it's a slow build to, uh, you know, going from silly, uh, to serious, to physical, uh, yeah. confrontation. Um, you know, and, and I think that's the secret to, to this. I think that's the secret to really any good scene is like, and that's what this is. This is one just big scene, but like, any good scene has a good push and pull like that. It just yep. has, and if you're if you're really lucky, uh, which is I, I think one of the reasons why this one worked pretty well was you've got uh, some metaphorical emotion in the middle, um, you know, uh, that both of these characters are, are are pulling for and against. Yeah, w- one for thing sure. that I really 
appreciated about part of even just like the structure of this is some of the overlapping dialogue i find that that really helps push the pace and you know coming from a like a uh, partially theater perspective i think that especially helps on stage because obviously you know you have to push the pace yourself you know Um, with editing obviously you can you can sort of change around the pace but i feel like even for like actors and directors who see that on a page they're like okay this needs to have a certain pacing to it and then that can sort of help inform them how they should play it and how they should put it on screen so i really appreciate that i appreciate that yeah i mean that's right you guys are both actors right yes we are yes yeah that's your background (laughs) yeah that's really cool it um it's so much more fun to share your writing with actors than any other like producers or cinematographers (laughs) because it's just because actors they get rhythm and they get they get breaths and they get pauses Mm -hmm. and you know uh not that producers and cinematographers can't. I'm just saying it's it's fun to see an edit, uh, an actor's perspective of dialogue. My dialogue is, I think, I think I'm a better dialogue writer than I am a story writer per se. Um, mm. And I think that comes from editing. I, I write like an editor. I mean, yeah. I just I can. And also, I was a musician. <laughs> so like before, yeah. I was an editor. I was so I have an internal clock and a rhythm in my head all the time and I kind of um, edit musically and I write editorially. Um, so it all trickles <laughs> down from music and rhythm and cadence. And um, so, yeah, I mean, my process is I tend to overwrite dialogue on the page and get it really kind of sorkin kind of snappy, like back yeah. and forth, like that overlapping stuff you, you mentioned. And then when I'm in the rehearsal process or, you know, even the filming process, I whittle it down to its barest essential. Totally, um, and you yeah. end up taking dialogue away and rewording things, or um, I, that's another re- like as a creator, I'm not precious in any way about my writing because I'm an editor and I'm used to sitting in a room with people going, "How do we, how do we tell the pe- best version of this story?" So right. I am not a precious writer in any way. So I love working with actors and and reworking dialogue and finding different rhythms and beats, and and I definitely write with that intention. Yeah, and I think that's something, like, especially, you know, uh, editing, like, in from, like, a musical perspective, almost. I think that's a lot of something that most people, like, they get, like, oh, this works, but they don't know why. You know, someone right. someone will see it, and they're like, oh, this, this just flows well. And, like, they'll say something like, it flows well, or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. But, but it it's, it's really comes from this, like, this musical idea. And so, like, I think it's cool how probably a lot of people recognize that, oh, I like that, that's good, but they don't know where it comes from, even though it comes from this, like, musical perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think Tarantino's a great example. Like, I think... Tarantino writes dialogue that's very quick and quippy and, you know, and people don't real. I mean, Sally Menke, his editor, I mean, those, they work, sadly, Sally passed away and he's in, and he's got a different editor now, but his, Fred Raskin, his new editor is, is the same, but like, there is a, there's a musicality going on between Tarantino's script, his actor saying the dialogue and his editor getting that rhythm. There is, it's a concert going on. And people, obviously the viewer, we're only seeing, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx and Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, at Candyland, just saying really funny lines very quickly. Yeah, and, yeah. and and we go, oh, wow, Tarantino's a genius. Um, and he is. Uh, but behind every one of those geniuses is an editor who gets the genius of the writer. Um, and right. Sorkin is the same way. I mean, Sorkin and Tarantino are kind of the quintessential examples of that fast-paced. Yeah, for sure. Overlapping dialogue that that is really good. And I mean... 
go back and watch West Wing, uh, which is a superb show. I mean, talk about a great TV show. The dialogue in that show is great. The editing in that show is really good. Like you go back mm. and watch those shows. I promise you there is a really talented editor putting those performances together. And it takes understanding the musicality of dialogue and rhythm. I mean, you know, you're actors. It's the yeah. same thing. You're yeah. you're feeling the rhythm as you as you go. It's it's yeah. all it's all a symphony. It's like we're all different chairs in this in this thing that we're building. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Man, that was a great conversation. But now we're going to ask you some questions about you, and we're actually mm. going to um, <laughs> sort of sort of bring up something that oh, headphone fell out of my ear. Something that you probably don't want to talk about again, but I think it would be like a cool perspective. <laughs> uh, so yeah. you you mentioned like you know some of your scripts going through that developmental hell, and even some mm. that didn't even make it out of it. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to just hear like what process do you have for like recovering? after a script that you that you do doesn't work out like Ooh. like what like what's that self-care process like and if there is any future for the project <laughs> etc yeah you have to be i mean it's like an actor uh, you you go into an audition and you get told no a million times yeah and you just have to be you have to build up a flak jacket that lets you you know take the bullets and um if you don't just keep going then yeah then someone else is going to step up and I'm, I'm not, I'm the least, maybe this is not a good thing to admit, but I'm probably the least competitive person you will find on the planet. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. like, I don't like any metaphors that make art competitive. Cause I think that's silly and stupid. Yeah. Um, but personally, like mentally, when you're dealing with rejection, the only way to, to, for me to push myself is just to say like, if I don't get up and, and keep writing or keep making, that's a big one for me as I always tell people, just keep making things. Um, if I don't, then somebody else is gonna, somebody else is going to. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, not that there's not room for all of us. There is, but, um, I don't know. I just, like I said, it's, it's a workout routine and, and you, you got to keep lifting the weights every day. And I, it took me a long time to realize, especially with the first script, that killing kind script, I thought, Oh, this is how you do it. Okay. So I got the, I got the big agency. Now I have a manager. They're going to send out my scripts. I got the ac big actor attached. This is, this is how you become a, a director and, yeah. and like a working director. And it, it was, I was so wrong and I was so green <laughs> and you just have to realize that the only person that is going to work for you is you. And, and, and yeah. there's a, there's a great, if you go, I don't remember what year it was, but South by Southwest, Mark Duplass gave uh, a great little keynote address where he says this key phrase, the cavalry is not coming. Um, and mm. that, if you go watch it, it's worth watching. It's on YouTube, but he's absolutely right. The cavalry is not, nobody is going to come like make things happen for you. You have to make them happen for yourself. And I got stuck in the, the age old uh, problem where you think, oh, you have an agent. Now you've got it made or you've yeah. got, yeah. you've got to produce. And it's just not true. They don't, it's not that they don't care. It's just that their priorities are so misaligned with your creative vision. And um, so after the killing kind fell apart, I was, I just kept writing and I don't know, I'd write every day. And I think finding small, this is another thing, another workout. Not that I was like some, big workout guy. Like I'm not, <laughs> I, I mean, I played sports growing up so I can think about goal oriented, uh, you know, work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is just making smaller goals. Like don't, or, and just not focusing on 
you know, the big goals, it's like the daily goals are almost the more important goals because those daily goals of, okay, let's put five pages down on a piece of paper today. Yeah. Doing that every day is going to make you a better writer. Mm -hmm. If you do that every day for a month, you're going to be such a, a, a more matured thinking processing writer than you are. If you're, if you're, if you've written this script that you're taking around to actors waiting to get reads and waiting for producers to say, yes, if you're sitting around waiting for people to say yes, good luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're, you're going to get burnt out really quick because the serotonin in your brain is looking for that hit every day of somebody saying yes. And it's just going to, it's going to drive you insane. So you gotta, you just gotta keep writing and working on micro goals. And, um, also something I tell people is, you know, my friends and I have been talking about this later is don't look for validation from institutions, like look for Mm. validation through your friends and the people you collaborate closest with. Like, you know, like my wife saying yes, like saying she got a kick out of a script is now almost where like 10 years ago, I was like looking for the Aaron Pauls of the world to be like loving <laughs> sure. my script. Yeah. Now it's like, that doesn't even matter right now. It's like, just if my wife gets a kick out of something, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Or if like my buddies, you know, my buddies who are actors or, or writers and my closest friends, that's where I look for my validation. Now it used to be like, mm. Oh, Sundance rejected this. It's terrible. Or, or it didn't get into South by Southwest or it didn't get the, then I would be crushed, but I s- just stop looking f- for validation through monolithic kind of like gatekeepers because those people they're so not important they really aren't you can't focus on those i mean they have their place don't get me wrong their sundances of the world are great the producers of the there are great producers out there and there's great agents out there i know they get a bad rap but there are great agents (laughs) out there and um you just can't focus on those people you really can't you can't focus on getting validation from those people for sure and i also i also just think that the people that are in your life who are going to, you know, comment on your script and give you that honest feedback, those are the people who have seen your whole journey. You know, those are the people who yeah. have seen your growth, not, you know, somebody at Sundance who has just seen this one script that you've done. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, I think that's fe- that feedback is really valuable. And if, if, if they're the closest people in my life, I probably value them a lot. I really value their opinions and what they think about things. So why would I take, you know, someone else's opinion over theirs? You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I think it's, you, it's important to remember that the people at the sun dances of the world, mm-hmm. um, they're just people too. Yeah. You know, yeah. the programmers are just regular old Joe's just like you and me and us and, and we, but like they're, you, you know, their tastes are so varied also exactly. the things they are looking for every year are so varied and just because you might not fit into the box of what that you know that guy or gal from silver lake who is watching screeners for sundance every yeah. year, <laughs> it just you can't let that you can't let that affect how you you view yourself as an artist and you yeah, can't absolutely. let that hurt your self-image because that's not what art is and that's not what the at least for me that's not why i create things and it took me a long time you know, to realize that, I mean, most of my twenties was spent, um, just frustratedly trying to get validation from people and trying to push these scripts like the killing kind, uh, through very small keyholes, trying to get through doors. And, and now I think I just, my approach is totally different. And, um, I'm actually, I think I, and now I'm in much more in an independent 
like mindset these days. I, I'm more of like, let's just get a camera and go make something or let's just go yeah. like not worry about how much budget we have or what actor we have or, you know, what, you know, there's all these algorithms in our, in our business where you're like, okay, which the killing kind was very much that it was like, okay, it, uh, it was X amount of dollars, you know, on the budget, Aaron Paul met X amount of dollars in sales in Spain and in, in Latin America. Yeah. It's very much an algorithm. We put the movie together yeah. like an algorithm and it's so heartless. Like that's, yeah. just, that is just not in hindsight. I'm like, man, that is not how I want to create. I mean, I'm not saying in the future, I won't ever do a project that way. Sure. But right, right now my brain is so geared towards like, like, like the, this short, you know, um, with Harriet Clayton and, and Rudy, the feature I wrote, which is called Dan is leaving. Um, I wrote for like 10, 11, 12 of my best friends who are actors. And I was like, mm. you know what? We're going to go May. I'm going to shoot it in May. Actually. I'm shooting this thing. Nice. Um, and we're just going to go make it for n- like very little money. And we're just going to have fun. it all. The feature all takes place at a house party in LA. Um, oh, over wow. the course yeah. of one evening. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hence the kind of dazed and confused vibe um, that I mentioned earlier, but we're just going to all hang out at my house and make a movie for 10 days. And like in the past, I would have worried so much about the end result that I wouldn't have even taken the step to make the thing. And that's, man, that's, that's another big lesson that I've learned is like, it's so much better just to take a step than to sit there and plan and not take steps. You know, if you sit there planning everything, you're never going to take a step. You're going to find yourself like me. You're going to be almost 40 years old. You will not have made your first movie. Not that benchmarks matter. Don't care about age and stuff like that. They really don't. But like I had set benchmarks for myself age wise and, and I missed all of them because I overthought things and I tried to go through I tried to have the cavalry come to me and it didn't. Yeah. And in hindsight, if, if I would do anything differently, I would go back and just make things and just like keep making things and keep making things. And some of them are going to suck. Yes, yeah. that's fine. Because in the making of things, you learn your, who you are as an artist and you grow. That's the only way to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we only have one more question for you. Uh, this is a, a little lighter. Your are really good, by the way. You guys are oh, like really, thanks. you guys are really on it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Well, this yeah. one's a bit simpler, so we hope you still like it. Yeah, definitely a little lighter. <laughs> um, we we just did a, a little bit of you know light stalking uh, before oh, this okay. interview, so um, we no wanted to ask, <laughs> which of your tattoos is your favorite? Oh, geez. Wow. Uh, that yeah. Um, Hmm. Well, it's like picking favorite children, but <laughs> well, speaking of fa- favorite children, yeah. Well, you know, I've got my dad died when I was uh, when I was young, mm-hmm. so I've got a tattoo. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, and I've got an anchor tattoo oh, uh, okay. for my dad, which that one's really special. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, f- then I've got silly tattoo. Like I got tattooed <laughs> for a film shoot one day. They were like, "We need somebody to get tattooed on camera for film," and I was like, "Well." <laughs> I've already got my arm halfway covered. You might as yeah. well just. So I got a barbershop logo. Throw another logo. on there. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Barbershop logo. But um, I do have, my dad tattoos is in, uh, an emotional one. And then I had a black lab dog that I was really close to um, mm. who was with me when I moved from Texas to California. Um, and he was with me for 10 years. And uh, his name was Milo. And I've got Milo on my arm, which is, uh, which is special. 
Yeah. 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 Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. That's a great way to end it, I think. For as sure. a matter yeah. of fact. <laughs> so, a good a good big ah. Exactly. Aww. A nice ah at the end of the show. Roll credits. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to get in touch with John, uh I this script is already being produced, so yeah, don't true. contact him about producing this don't script. You dare. But, uh, but I, I do have you, lots of others. He does there do you have go. lots of others. It, yeah, if you want to read more of his work, uh, his email will be in the description below. Yeah. And definitely keep us updated on, you know, Harriet when when it might be. Or I guess uh, Dan is leaving, not Harriet. That's right. Uh, When Dan is leaving, you know, is coming out. Any updates with that? We'd love to keep in touch about that. Uh, Do you have uh, anything else you'd like to plug before we let you go? Ooh, uh, well, yeah, actually, uh, a film I edited, uh, this is not writing, but a film I edited is playing at Sundance this week, or Sundance, Slay, uh, Sundance South by Southwest is going to kill me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Women is Losers. It was directed by Lizette Feliciano. She's really awesome and talented. It's playing at South by Southwest this Tuesday. I think by the time this probably airs, that will have passed. Okay. Um, but check it out. It's going to be out there and, and floating around in the world. And it's, it's really, it's a cool one. It's uh, it takes place all in San Francisco in the 1960s and early seventies. And it revolves around Lizette. It's a kind of based on a true story. Lizette's mother uh, grew up in a Catholic school and she got pregnant when she was like 17 um, and has to, uh, con- this is the sixties and seventies. So abortion is a very murky topic, political topic. Mm-hmm. So San Francisco, uh, Latina culture and, you know, the abortion debate. It's a really interesting movie. It sounds super heavy from my pitch, but there's <laughs> a lot of levity in the movie and a lot of heart and like Latin culture and color. It's, it's awesome. I'm really proud of that one. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely check that out. And I'll, yeah. uh, I'll put something, you know, I don't know, a link to a website or something like that in the description as well for sure and yeah all um, right i think that's all we have for you john yeah thanks so much for joining us today and i hope you have a fabulous la or woodland hill sunday yeah yeah thanks i think i'm gonna drive my kid out to the beach and just try to get away from the clouds absolutely absolutely all right man have a good one yeah you too all right bye bye